house upon a rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. I'm going to ask you a question here in a moment. Um, Jesus tells stories, and he tells them to make a point. He wants to drive home something. So my question that I want you to answer in a minute is this. What was the point of this story? What is the point that Jesus is trying to make when he talks about the wise and foolish builder? Don't look in your Bible. Just tell me in a moment. See, when Jesus gives stories, he tends to drive home a point with the story. And that's the purpose of him communicating them. And so uh, let me give you a couple examples. He tells the story of a sower who grabs this bag of seeds and he takes it and he begins to scatter the seeds. As he walks, he just keeps scattering them. And the Bible says that there are seeds that fall along a path. There are seeds that fall among the rocks. There are seeds that fall among the thorns. And then there are seeds that fall on fertile soil. It says that the first three seeds, the point of the story he's trying to make is that some of us have a hard heart like the path and the birds come and eat the seeds. Other of us have uh, life's cares and worries choke out the seed and the gospel doesn't bear fruit. And then others of us have this heart that is so fertile that when the seed of the gospel gets planted in it, it grows and produces an incredible crop. And his point is, what is the soil of your heart like? And he kind of goes after that through this story. Another example is he says that there is a group of people that understand something about the kingdom of heaven, and he describes it like a treasure. He says that there's a man who goes out into a field. He's digging. He comes across a treasure of amazing worth. So much so that he buries it, hides it, walks away, sells everything he has to purchase the field. The point that Jesus is making in that story is to say that when you know that the kingdom of heaven is present, that you should be a person that's willing to sell everything, give any and everything away to obtain that treasure because it is worth it. So he makes these points anytime he tells a story. He's trying to drive home something. So here's my question. What is the point of that story? The point of the wise man building his house on the rock and the foolish man building his house on the sand. Someone, a couple of you, tell me, what was the point? This is, uh, by the way, not a rhetorical question. Okay, where faith is set upon. Okay, good. Someone else. Okay, everything needs to have a firm foundation. Someone else was saying something? Yeah, the foundation is vitally important. What else? Yeah. Okay, wise man builds his house upon the rock of Christ. Christ is that rock. Good. What else? Yeah. Okay, pay attention to God's signs. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Okay, that we're all foolish at times. You get the idea. There's all kinds of thoughts about this particular story. But Jesus was really specific when he talked about what his point was. Let me ask you this question. Where is this story found? I'll narrow it down for you because in the first group, someone went, the New Testament. 
Those that are just, they just threw it out. I'll narrow it. Obviously, it's in red letters. Jesus said it. It's in the Gospels, okay? Matthew, okay? Someone's throwing out Matthew. Yes, it is in Matthew. Where in Matthew? Not 11. 7, okay? Matthew 7. Now, does anyone know what 5, 6, and 7 are in the book of Matthew? Sermon on the Mount. So this story, the context, is with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you remember, Jesus starts off telling about the, one of the most prolific teachings in all of the New Testament. He comes onto the scene and he says that there are people that are blessed. Blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He then begins to give other teachings. He talks about this idea that some of you think that it's about murder, but I tell you, it's about hate. Some of you think it's about adultery, but I tell you it's about lust. He walks through a set of teachings. He talks about what it's like to pray, what it's like to fast, how you should put his kingdom first and everything else will be added unto you. He talks about all of these specific teachings. And here's what's fascinating. The very end of his teaching, the last words that are recorded for the Sermon on the Mount are this story. And he says this, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or another way to say it is, anyone who hears these words of mine and practices them, follows them, obeys them. So anyone who hears these words of mine and obeys them, they are like a man who built his house on a rock. When the storms came and the winds blew, the house stood firm. And then he says that anyone who hears these words of mine and does not practice them, does not do them, does not obey them, the storm comes because he is like a man that built it on sand. And when those storms come, it wipes out the foundation. The point that Jesus is making specifically is this idea that everything that I have just taught you, this greatest sermon ever preached, the end of it, he says, follow it, obey it, do it. That's his point. It's very specific. Now, when it comes to the church today, I am convinced that one of the topics that's not on the top 10 bestseller list is the idea of following Jesus into obedience. We, we love to say we should follow Jesus into love. It's sexy to say we should follow Jesus into social justice or to follow him into care for the poor or Around here, we talk a lot about this idea that we must follow God into mission. That He is a missionary God that has sent us, and we are the sent ones that must follow. But I'm telling you, I think the church, across this nation and perhaps across the world, chafes a little bit when you talk about the idea of following Jesus into obedience. When you talk about hearing the Word of God 
in making sure your life aligns with his teachings. There's this, whoa, hey, whoa. I kind of want to just be about love. I want to be about caring about people. But he makes it really clear that it's obedience. Dallas Willard makes this statement, and you should see it on the screen. He says, the missing note in evangelical life today is not in the first instance spirituality, but rather obedience. We have generated a variety of religion to which obedience is not regarded as essential. I don't understand how anyone can look ingenuously at the contents of Scripture and say that Jesus intends anything else for us but obedience. Now this morning I plan on talking about James chapter 1, and I'm going to highlight two main points. The first one is this idea of obedience. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes about obedience. I'll get down. We're going to spend some time worshiping again in song. I'll come back up and talk about my second point then before we take communion. So this first point that I want to drive home is this, that James talks about in this next passage we're looking at, this idea of obedience. If you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 1. We've been uh, starting this series on true religion. We're several weeks in now. And uh, you all have realized so far that James talks about a couple big ideas. Big idea number one, trials will come. You will face trials. It's inevitable. And in the midst of you, you're supposed to consider it joy. Talk the second week about this idea that temptation will come. And when you face temptation, one of the things that you must do is shift your focus. Instead of blaming others, you need to shift your focus to an attention on who God is. Because he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he, and he gives these gifts to you. He chose you, in fact, it says, to be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So that whole first section of chapter 1 talks about that. And we find ourselves at verse 19 today. And in James 1.19, we're going out of the NIV here, it says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. He goes on to say, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man that looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So James starts off this passage and talks about a couple, in my opinion, key ideas. And the first idea is this idea of obedience. He says this, very plain and simple, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with how clear that statement is. Do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Now what James is highlighting is this idea of the importance of listening. Listening is what I would consider one of the more important words in the scriptures. I make that statement based off the idea that repetition is one of the ways in which you can tell what in the scriptures is important. The more you see it repeated, 
the more you should take note of it. So the verb to listen in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is used hundreds of times. In fact, over a thousand times in the Old Testament and over 400 times, I think it's 425 to be exact, in the New Testament. I mean, this is a word, this verb is used over and over and over again. And the point is this, that listening and obedience are directly linked. The reason I say that is because the Jewish people, the Hebrew mind, understood that listening brought knowledge, and knowledge brings action. In fact, you can't separate those, in their mind. That if you listen to something, you began to understand it, and by understanding it, it necessitated that you follow it, or that you obey it, or that you put it into action. There is no way to separate those. Now, in our Western world, it's quite different. We see knowledge as just the acquisition of facts. We see knowledge, we kind of narrow its definition just to uh, abstract concepts, theoretical principles. It's like all about data mastery, filling our brains with as much information and details as possible. That's what we think of as knowledge. In fact, we say that people that are smart are the ones that can remember the most facts. They're knowledgeable. They have the most, you know, ram up in their head. Okay? That's how we describe knowledge. But for the Hebrew, it was much different than that. It wasn't just about knowledge acquisition or mastery of knowledge, but rather it was about character formation and action which is much different than the way that we tend to look at it. See, to the Hebrew, you didn't know something until you did it. You didn't know something until you did it. In fact, Barrett makes this statement. The distinction arises from the difference between doing and knowing. The Hebrew is concerned with practice, the Greek with knowledge. Right conduct is the ultimate concern of the Hebrew right thinking, that of the Greek. The difference between the writers that James was corresponding with and us, or even the people that lived around those Jewish people dispersed among the nations, the difference rests in this, that they did not separate convictions from character. They did not separate belief from their behavior. They didn't somehow go, okay, there's knowing and then there's doing. The two were connected. One of the ways that we know that this is true is by the very word obedience. Both the Greek and the Hebrew word for obedience means to hear, to listen, to listen under or obey. What he's getting at is when you listen to something, it should equal obeying it in this context. So that's why he says very clearly, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. It's not about acquisition of knowledge, but rather it's about fostering obedience. Now James talks about this earlier in the passage too. So if you look up a little higher in the, in the text, verse 19 and 20, he says this, Everyone should be quick 
to listen, quick to listen, quick to obey, quick to follow. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and then slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Here's the next key point. He says this, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Now, the Greek word for moral filth in that context means this, wax in the ear. It's kind of gross, okay? But what James is basically saying is this, be quick to listen, and also, some of you, you need to get your Q-tips out because you've got to clean out your ear because you're not hearing this. Listen. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't, don't listen and then not react. He's reminding them that listening should follow with obedience. It's just a natural, natural thing. In fact, um, he goes on to talk about this idea that faith is really connected to obedience. That one's faith must be connected to obedience. And I think that's what the church today needs to grasp. That we cannot divorce obedience from discipleship. We cannot say that, yeah, I, I want to follow Jesus, but it's on my terms. The reality that James is getting us to see is that obedience, listening to the commands or the teachings of Jesus require following. Let me leave you with this quote. St. Gregory makes this statement. If someone puts on the name of Christ, but does not show a life corresponding to that name, he makes a lie of the name. Let me say that again. It'll be up on the screen. If someone puts on the name of Christ, but does not show a life corresponding to that name, he makes a lie of the name. For neither is it possible for the Lord not to be justice, purity, and truth, an estrangement for every evil, nor is it possible for a Christian not to show that he partakes of those qualities. That's why Jesus says this, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, obeys them, practices them, he is like a man whose house is built on a rock. The point he's making is, listen and follow in obedience. We're going to sing a few more songs here. And then I'm going to come up and talk about the second major point that James is making. Let me pray with you. That there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. He makes an interesting point. What he's saying is this, that in all of heaven and earth, in all of the domain of God, in all of His reign, I mean, we pray, Lord, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in everything, there must be a long obedience in the same direction. Because when that happens, it makes life worth living. Now the Bible puts it this way. Maybe you've heard these a little bit more. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that says this. Hear, O Israel... And be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, 
and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. He says, listen, Israel, and follow my teaching. And as you do, it will go well with you. It will be good for you. It's a passage in the book of Psalms, Psalm number one. It's the first kind of gateway to the rest of the Psalter. It makes a statement about the wicked man and then about the man that meditates. And it says this, Those who meditate on the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The point of that psalm is contrasting the wicked man with this man that prospers. And he says that the wicked man is a man who walks in the counsel of the wicked, that stands in the way of sinners, that sits in the seat of mockers. But there's someone that's the opposite of that, and he is the man that looks into the law of the Lord, meditates on it, and follows it. And as he does that, he is like a tree that is beautiful, it's growing, it's strong, it's vibrant, it's right next to this river that's giving it life and it's bearing great fruit. The second point that James makes in this text is that when obedience happens, there is blessing. The point he's making is this idea of blessing. He says this about it, and you can see it in your Bible, it says that the man that looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The idea is this idea of blessing. And he starts off by saying that the man looks intently into the perfect law. Now, the, the very word for intently makes a lot of sense here means to look with interest, to look, to kind of gaze at intently. In fact, the literal Greek word means to kind of like to stoop over and look at. It, it, it means to like zero in all of your focus on a particular thing and gaze at it with great intention. There was a, a girl here in the first service that was sitting up front that had her new engagement ring on. And we do this often with engagement rings. Can I borrow your hand for a moment? Thank you. It'd be the other one, but I mean, it doesn't matter. Just, I'm just giving you a hard time. Just giving you a hard time. So anyhow, what happens is anytime we hear that someone has been engaged, anytime, we, it's just instantly we go like this, right? We, we look intently. We gaze greatly at the particular ring. And the point of that isn't necessarily the ring. The idea is what's behind it. That we're intent on seeing something that represents this relationship, this connection between the future husband and wife. We, we just glance at it. We, we don't just like quickly move past it. We focus on it. That's what this passage is saying. And it says it very clear, and the point it's making is that the person who is a doer of the word, a person that is a follower of the teachings of Jesus, is not a casual reader of the word. That's basically what he's saying. That you can't just glance at the scriptures every now and then. You can't just pick them up 
dust off the cover, flip to whatever spot lands open, read your verse for the day, and move on, and assume that what the result of that will be is a life of blessing. He's saying that blessing comes as you look intently into the law. That is, you look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, you will be blessed in what you do. It requires a study, and it requires an intent, an intentionality to not just read it, but to follow it. And he says this, that you will be blessed in what you do. If you approach the scriptures that way, that will be the result. And what's interesting, to me at least, in this passage, is he highlights five implied as well as direct results that demonstrate what that blessing looks like. So five implied or direct statements that show you exactly what that blessing looks like. I'm going to run through those five really quick. The first one is this. Doing what the Word says will bring about the righteous life that God desires. In verse 20, it talks about the idea that if you don't live according to the law, it will not be good. It will not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But if you do, it's implied, if you do look at the Word with this intentionality, it will bring about the life that God desires as well as you desire. The second one is found in verse 21. And says this, that the word of God, as you look intently into it, can save you. It has a saving presence in your life. Earlier, he's telling us, I think it's in uh, verse 18. Yeah, 17 and 18, he talks about the idea that God chose you and birthed you through the word of truth. He's using all of these illustrations around the idea of word. That he's given you life through his word. And in this particular point, he's saying that I am, I am giving you salvation or I'm creating a saving presence in your life through the Word. Now, it's not if you read, you become saved. It's, it has a saving effect on you. That's another one of the blessings. The third blessing is this. Verse 22, it keeps us from deception. It says this, Anyone who, or uh, be a doer of the word, not just listen, but do it. In the middle it says, don't be deceived, is the word. Anyone who does these words is not deceived, is the point he's trying to make. Basically, very simply, one of the ideas here is that if you are a listener who does it, does what it's, the word is saying, you won't be deceived. And I think that James is being really specific in saying there is a deception that comes from thinking that listening is enough. I mean, I, I think that's a deception that often happens in our particular context, not just new community, but in the United States. There, there is a tendency for us to feel as if, if we've listened to the word, then we've done our part. That it, if... if What's required of me is really just to show up, hear someone talk about the Word, or turn on my radio and hear somebody say something about the Word. And if I've listened to the Word, then I've really done what God's asked of me. And the point he's making is don't, don't deceive yourself in that. Listening has to, and this comes back to the first part, has to result 
in obedience. It has to result in action. And if it doesn't, then it's merely deception. Last idea, or next idea, is this idea that the word also gives freedom. Freedom is a spectacular point. Look at that outside. Everyone wants to look, so go ahead and look. I mean, look, check that out. If you're new to Spokane, welcome. This is just lovely fall weather. Okay? But here, here's the point he's making. Okay? He's saying that if you follow, if you follow, it will bring freedom. Following Jesus and following his teachings brings freedom. We have a tendency to think it's the opposite, though. Anytime people say, hey, here's what you need to follow, these are the rules, this is the obedience, I immediately go, I'm in bondage. You, you've tied me down. There's not, I just have to follow. I hate this. I, I mean, it's such a narrow box. And what God says so clearly throughout his text, but in this passage, it's the perfect law that gives freedom. The perfect law that gives freedom. In fact, Jesus says this, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He follows up that statement, talking about this idea that you can have an abundant life as you follow me with these words. Listen to him. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That as we hear the teaching and we follow the teaching, it creates freedom. I started trying to think through, what are some ways in which following brings freedom? Here are a couple that I came up with. It's freedom from the absence of guilt. Freedom from the absence of shame. Some of us, by our own admission, would say that presently we feel so weighed down by guilt and by shame. And really what this text is saying is that in obedience there is great freedom. That Christ came not to have you feel weighed down and burdened, but as he says, to give you a yoke that is easy and that is light, that, that brings a saving presence to your very life. Another idea is freedom from debt. There's some of us that just feel pressure from debt. And there's freedom in walking in the ways of Christ. Another is one that strikes me a lot, anxiety or worry. And I start getting anxious, I start getting worried, like I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to look like, and I always assume the worst. And, and following, trusting, creates such freedom. I don't have to feel this anxiety and this tension. I just release it simply because I'm willing to step into obedience, and obedience brings freedom. You get the idea. The last one that I want to talk about is the one that's so clear in the text, and that is, he says, if you look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, continuing to do this, not forgetting what you have heard, but doing it, you will be blessed in what you do. It makes just... I mean, it's as exact as you need it to be. You do this, and the result is blessing. And the blessing, I think, is a few things. One, the very things we just described, the first four, are a present blessing that is happening in your life as a result of you following Jesus. But I also think 
what he is implying, because he talks about it in verse 12 also, is this future blessing. That a person that walks in the ways of Jesus not only is blessed in the present, but someday will be blessed in a way they can't even imagine. As they stand before God and they say, listen, I I heard your voice and I followed. And he even describes his sheep that way. He says that all my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's the point he's making, that that kind of person will be blessed in what they do. I finished the first talk by saying anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, practices them, is like a wise man. Let me finish it with a statement from Jesus again when he says this, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If we follow them, we will be blessed. Right now, Ben and Bob are going to come to lead us into communion. Let me say this about communion. This is another one of those blessings that we were just talking about. That we have the privilege of remembering together as the body of Christ the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The Word of God communicates that God gave His Son, Jesus, to come to this earth to live a perfect and blameless life on our behalf to enable us to have a relationship again with God. It's nothing of our own merit. We don't have to earn it. All we have to do is simply come before Him and say, God, I I accept this blessing. And then this morning, we have the privilege of being able to go and, and to break off a piece of the bread and say, God, this is a representation of your body that was broken on my behalf. And then as you dip it into the wine, you have the ability to say that, God, this is in remembrance of your blood that was shed on the cross for my sin. And that is one of the greatest blessings that any of us will ever experience, is this gift given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as they play for just a minute or so, I want you to reflect on this idea that that God has called us to follow, and that following is obedience. And then as we obey, the result is blessing. And take a moment just to thank God for His gift of Jesus Christ, for the opportunity for you to take communion as part of the family of God, as part of His chosen ones. And then as you go and take, take communion, focus on remembering Him and His gift. There's a communion table right up here on this side and on this side. There's a tendency for the lines to kind of get longer. So if you notice one line's getting longer than another, just make your way over to the other side. Let's take communion together and remember his gift of grace toward us. Let's pray.